Let me state a word of appreciation and thanks to Trail as he preached the Less Than Life's Lord's Day morning. Uh, again, would like to thank the congregation on behalf of my family and me for your prayers on our behalf at Jericho. The meeting appeared to be very successful in the sense that the brethren were excited about the messages and felt sure that much fruit would be borne by it in the days and in the weeks ahead. And you, of course, had a part in that in your encouragement of, of us, and we're very thankful and appreciative of that. And we beseech the same for that meeting at Montrose beginning next Lord's Day morning. It really is a lectureship, if you please, and the theme on which we will focus throughout that will be troubling compromises of the church. Some of the things that are beginning to inch inward and gradually work their way into the church. And so this particular lectureship will surround that, and I'll be speaking each of the services. So if you would, keep that activity and that endeavor also in your prayers. And we, of course, look forward to being able to be back with our church family here. It certainly would also be of note to keep in mind as we have activities going on this fall, our hayride and other things this coming Saturday. If you can, mark off space on your calendar. Come and be a part of that. And as you give thought to those matters of the opportunity to share fellowship one with another in that way, our congregation continues to grow. Our congregation here has been mightily blessed by God. And so may we ever have a desire to make sure that the things we proceed and do, not the least of which will be a part of the lesson this morning, will also be able to be directed in a way that's pleasing unto Him. It is with that thought in mind that I would ask you to consider a lesson. You probably noticed that Brother Joy mentioned it a moment ago, also listed in the bulletin. The title to which is simply this, Faith and the Music of Worship. I'm sure you noticed as we considered the reading a moment ago from Romans 10, 17, as well as Romans 14, 23, that there is an interesting linkage in those verses. And it'll be a linkage that we will see clearly put before us in just a few moments this morning. That letter B that's often written along with a scripture reference Sometimes you'll see either a letter A or a letter B. If it's A, it means the first part of the verse. If it's a B, it means the last part of the verse. And you may have noticed that Brother Joy read only the last part of Romans 14, 23, since that was the part that had the great bearing on our lesson this morning. Might I invite you then to consider some introductory thoughts about this issue. Some things that will put us in the mindset of where we'll be going and some of the initial thoughts relative to the lesson today. The great blessing of Christianity is highlighted so wondrously in Ephesians 1-7, where on that occasion we read about in whom we have forgiveness of sins. Of course, that's in Christ. And that is by the goodness of God's grace. Might we use that to ask about music then? We have sung together already this morning four songs. And as we sung them together, we were reminded in many ways about some great truths in the Word of God. And might we also say, we were challenged on some occasions to live faithfully. We were challenged to appreciate the duty and the faithfulness and responsibility that's ours. But we each understand that music, of course, occurs often in life. We listen to radio sometimes in our cars as we move from one place to another, maybe in your home. You listen to the radio, or you listen to a Walkman, or some other kind of music-playing device. Music comes in so many different forms. 
I've listed just a few. There's country, there's western, there's bluegrass, and on and on the list goes. Maybe your favorite is in that list somewhere that you like to listen to as you ride in the car. Of course, amongst all of them, you can also discuss there's instrumental in variety. There's purely vocal in character. At any rate, one might quickly begin to ask questions like this. What has God said about the music of worship? And does it matter? Has He said anything? It, you see, is a vital matter to not only have at least some answer to that, but to have God's answer to it. I would submit to you that today, let's devote just a few moments to not only look at some history, that is to say, what has brought the world of music and worship to the place that it now is, but also to ask more directly, what is it the Bible has to say with specificity and in detail? And with that said, that will in fact, I think, provide us a good lesson that takes us back to the title, Faith and the Music of Worship. In fact, with that in mind, let's start on that historical journey for just a few moments. We might well begin in the Old Testament because it is true that music has had a role to play in the human family from almost the very dawn of time. I say almost because the first mention of this is in Genesis 4.21. On that occasion, we learned that one of Lamech's family members, one of his sons, whose name was Jubal, he was in fact a gentleman who was the father of all such as play the pipe and the harp, or that is to say that play the organ and the harp. We have here the very father of the musical families, and it was Jubal. But as you proceed down the corridors of time, you quickly come to David and the exquisite skill that he had at playing the harp, even able to soothe that evil spirit in, in King Saul. 1 Samuel chapters 15 and 16 tells us. However, following him, isn't it interesting? We can even learn something about Job. Now, in chronological order, Job preceded David. However, that book in the Bible comes after it, so I actually wrote the references in Job afterward. But Job lived in the patriarchal era, and in particular in Job 30, verse 31, you notice he makes reference to the organ and the harp that he owned. Because in the difficulties of his life, the terrible things that had happened to him relative to the loss of his family, his possessions, he says that that organ had been turned into mourning. And that particular harp, in fact, had become the thing that is recognized as weeping. And so, he, suffice it to say, we find many references to the matter of music even in the confines of the Old Testament. In Ezra 2 verse 64, on the time of the children's return from Babylonian captivity, mention is made of the singing men and the singing women. There were those whose talents were in that area, and they understood their role to play in the service of God in, in that regard. Even beyond that, one might notice in a few passages how that, the usage of these mechanical instruments, found its way into worship as it occurred in the Old Testament. David authorized it and introduced it. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 25 to 30, there's an extensive listing about those instruments that were played in the reign of Hezekiah in the temple with regard to the worship of God. I say all of that to say this. Come now with me into the New Testament. There is not a single reference 
anywhere in the New Testament that the early church used mechanical instruments in its worship. In fact, as you read in the book of Acts, which in 28 chapters chronicles that early church, there's not a single reference, not one, to the usage of a mechanical instrument in the matter of worship to God. However, you and I are not going to stop at that point. But you'll notice, if you let a thousand years of history now continue to pass, bringing us to about the year 1000 A.D., mechanical instruments had worked their way into and were common in the matter of worship, especially in the Catholic Church. It was known, of course, by that time, everywhere the Catholic Church existed, that predominantly there was the appearance of an organ, the appearance of a mechanical instrumental music. You might notice as you come to the Reformation era, there were many who opposed the usage of instruments. I'd like to share with you some quotes, if I might. Now remember, we have come to the Reformation era when there were many who realized the problems associated with the Catholic Church and who had a desire to reform it, to put it back closer to what they imagined that it should in fact have been. Some of those leaders have names that you'll well recognize. I will list their names and then share with you a quotation taken from the writings of that man. First of all, Thomas Aquinas, highly regarded as one of the most respected Catholic theologians, lived in the 13th century. Here's what he had to say. Our church does not use musical instruments as harps and psalteries to praise God withal that she may not seem to Judaize. So in the church or the congregation in which he worshipped, they did not use them, though again predominantly most others did. John Calvin, again well known as one of the mo most influential leaders of the early part of the 16th century, it says, and I quote, "...musical instruments in celebrating the praises of God would be no more suitable than the burning of incense, the lighting of lamps, and the restoration of the other shadows of the law." John Calvin penned that. Isn't it interesting to ask today about the Presbyterian church that he founded and how often they used mechanical instruments? They seem to have veered far from the actual desire of the one who founded that particular denomination. Let's look at the founder of the Methodist church, John Wesley. He wrote, I have no objection to instruments of music in our chapels, provided they are neither heard nor seen. Interesting quotation from John Wesley, isn't it? Here's another one from Martin Luther, the one who set in order that Reformation movement in its initial aspects on the last day of October in the year 1517. The organ in the worship service is a sign of Baal. That was written by Martin Luther. I say all of that to say this. You notice that many of those influential denominational leaders had in fact no desire whatsoever for a usage of a mechanical instrument to take place in any worship service in which they were a part. Now clearly in the years that followed their deaths, those organizations began to introduce piece by piece and part by part the usage of a mechanical instrument. But that does, however, bring us to the next point in our study of history. We now need to come to the restoration movement. When we come to that period of time, 
in which it was begun to be realized that all of these denominations had gone far afield from what the Bible taught, and there was an earnest and sincere desire to simply go back to this book as the one and only pattern for proper worship. What could one say about the usage of instruments then? In fact, as you notice, one of the very bottom things, for a period of time of around 60 to 70 years, that restoration movement, it seemed, proceeded relatively smoothly. Now, there were occasional interests and desires by some to introduce a mechanical instrument, but by and large, the tide was far too strong to permit it, far too thorough to allow that to happen. However, in the decade of the 1850s, Alexander Campbell wrote many articles dealing with the subject in that paper that he authored known as the Millennial Harbinger. But as we arrive at the year 1859, a rather interesting set of events began to take place. Let me highlight them for you if I might. The congregation that met in Midway, Kentucky, it was one for which the singing was known to be atrocious. It was just awful. And so that particular congregation, at least some of them, began to meet on Friday evening at one of the houses. And it came to be they would use a melodeon to assist them in getting the pitch of the songs correct. This again was in Midway, Kentucky in 1859. However, it wasn't long before the melodeon was used to accompany fully that singing on Saturday evening. And then as they began to notice, the singing, it seemed, improved dramatically when the melodeon accompanied, or that is to say, was played along with the actual singing. And so one of the sisters asked the preacher, whose name was Lewis Pinkerton, if they could actually bring the melodeon to the Sunday morning worship service and also make use of it on that occasion. And Mr. Pinkerton said, I have no objection to it. And so it was that in Midway, Kentucky in 1859, we have the first recorded instance of a mechanical instrument of music being used in a worship service of the Christian church. It was not without opposition. One of the elders, whose name was Adam Hibbler, opposed staunchly the usage of the melodeon. And in fact, when it was first brought in, he snuck over one night, took it out in the yard, and destroyed it. However, the opposition to it was not, over, was not strong enough to thoroughly overcome it because they quickly purchased another melodeon, and so too it was brought into place as well. However, it too was stolen out of the congregation by those who opposed it, and yet a third melodeon was purchased. This time it remained. The opposition apparently did not wish to pursue any further that, that matter of taking it away. I might mention today that that second melodeon, the one that was removed from that building, that one was not destroyed. But to this day is on display at the Midway College in Midway, Kentucky. If you ever wish to see it, you can drive there. They have it on display for any to see. Once that was introduced in that year, it was not long. In fact, 47 years later, it was recognized openly that there was now two divisions. There were those who did worship with an instrument of music, a mechanical one, and there were those who did not. And by the time the census was taken in 1906, it was then recognized two different classes were now understood. I might ask you to notice the history we've just described. 
it has been a controversial thing then for a long, long time, the usage of a mechanical instrument in worship. What started in Midway, Kentucky is now, of course, blossomed all over the world. What should you and I have to say about this? What does it take us to consider? I would point out to you that the issue surrounds the following. It simply, you see, is a matter of faith. There are so many in our world who will quickly say, it's a choice. Is it just a matter of preference? One particular church prefers not to have it, but another one does, so they say. And thus, isn't it fine for everybody? It's just your choice. But let us devote the remainder of our lesson, having at least revisited some of the history, to appreciating the fact it's not just a preference and it's not just a choice. In fact, let's begin in the following way. As we noted earlier, the first century Christians knew very well about mechanical instruments of music. In fact, Paul even referred to them in 1 Corinthians 14. But he said nothing about using one in a worship service. In fact, he said they're lifeless and the sounds that they give forth are lifeless and dead. Can it not thus be affirmed and stated based on that passage? The first century Christians knew much about them. And if they had wished to use them in worship, and if it had been the command of God, they could have done so. But let's move on from there to look at this point. The use of them, as we just noted, is not thus just a matter of preference. In fact, let's begin to revisit some of those verses that we noted earlier. Let's begin in Colossians 3. In verse 17 of that passage we learn, "...whatsoever ye do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him." And thus we learn that for the church in Colossae, as well as any other one, Paul affirmed anything that you either do, say, or teach. It must be with the authority of and in the name of Jesus the Christ." With that thought in mind, we then need to ask, what has the Lord said about music and worship? What has been His commandment and what has been the statute and law that He has set forth? You'll notice in Romans 10, 17, we come to a pivotal passage. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. We learn thus the matter of faith. It is critical, it is essential, it is vital. In Hebrews eleven six, we learn that it's impossible to please God without faith. And here we learn where faith comes from. It doesn't come from personal preference. It doesn't come from opinion. It doesn't come from choice or decision relative to a group of men. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And in Romans 14, 23b, Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So when it comes to the music of our worship, we notice it certainly must be by faith, but faith comes by hearing the Word of God, and whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So whatever we find with respect to the music of worship, if it is not confined to, written within the Word of God, it is sin. It is thus not approved by Him, and therefore it's a sinful activity. If then that be the case, it behooves us to ask, what has this book said about the music of worship? Because that apparently would constitute faith, the obedience thereto. And furthermore, whatever would not thus be identified as such, by its definition, would be sinful. 
for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. It is with that thought in mind, I would ask you to look at all of the verses, every one of them, that describe music in New Testament worship. Let's start in Ephesians 5.19. On that occasion, as Paul addressed the church of Ephesus, he had this rather powerful remark to say. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. So we notice that in singing, one speaks one to another, which is perhaps an obvious thing. Even though God is the primary object in that, He is the audience in worship, we have the luxury of speaking to one another. We do so in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. So far, there has been nothing said about the music, though. But now we arrive at that point in that very verse. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And isn't it amazing that thus we find in the revelation of faith information has been given about the music. What was it? Singing. Now, there has been much made about the second word that occurred after the word singing. Let's again revisit it in English. Singing and making melody. And so some have concluded, so I'm able by God's authorization to make melody on a piano or on an organ or on a drum. But might we revisit, is that what the inspired writer said? Singing and making melody. The Hebrew, the Greek verb is the word solo, P-S-A-L-L-O. And you and I will need to ask very clearly what it is that that word means. We understand what the word singing means. We each know the definition for that. But this matter of making melody, it is interesting that God has identified thoroughly and fully what that involves. If you look at classical Greek, you find that that word solo can be used with respect to the playing of some musical instrument. But that word does not identify the activity itself. The instrument is always mentioned in conjunction with it. So that, for instance, one might solo on a harp, solo, at least in our day, on a guitar, solo on a banjo. The instrument must always accompany it to identify and express the character of what soloing is done. God has mentioned the instrument. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. What is the instrument to be played? One solos the heart. And so God has identified what soloing is occurring. Singing and doing so as one makes melody in the heart. There is no mention whatsoever here of a mechanical instrument of music. And there's no authorization for such in any regard. With that verse mentioned, let's look at another. In Colossians 3 verse 16, we arrive at another powerful and potent and penetrating text. Here we read, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. Now, solo does not occur in this verse. There's only one attribute, it's singing. But might I invite each of us to notice what's mentioned in connection with it. How does that verse begin? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. 
So we start by appreciating that as God's Word and the Word of Christ dwells within us or indwells us, notice what that leads to, teaching and admonishing one another. It is thus in song that we admonish and we teach. Isn't that a beautiful and rather wondrous idea? In our singing, we encourage and exhort and teach and admonish each other. Some of those songs are some of the most powerful sermons to be heard in the entirety of the worship hour. How beautiful heaven must be. That's an encouragement to all of us to live faithfully so that that beautiful place will be our eternal home. What's more, notice though, a mechanical instrument cannot admonish and it cannot teach. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? If it's the case, the Word of Christ must dwell in us richly. And if it's the case, in our singing, we admonish and teach one another. That outlaws the usage of a mechanical instrument because it can't teach anything. It's lifeless. The only sound it makes is when a human, in fact, or some other power supply blows air across a bellows or some other feature. You and I see this in that passage. There is no hint even of the usage of a mechanical instrument. It isn't authorized at all. Let's look at two more. In Romans 15 verse 9, near the close of the Roman epistle, Paul quoted from the Old Testament, and in that particular passage, he expressly wrote, I will sing unto thy name. Out of all the passages in the Old Testament that make allusion to or reference to the worship that occurred in the temple, which by introduction of David involved mechanical instruments, Paul quoted from this passage in which only singing took place. We have thus an authorization in the Gentile churches of singing taking place, but nothing else in terms of music. Let us look at yet another. In 1 Corinthians fourteen fifteen, in that congregation at Corinth, that was known to have many problems known to have many things about its worship that was less than ideal, and many of it was just completely condemned, like their abuse of the Lord's Supper, and like their other occurrences of their misuse of the spiritual gifts. In the midst of all of that, Paul wrote, I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. Not the slightest hint of the accompaniment of that with a mechanical instrument of music. None. If we pause at that point to notice, we've looked at the church in Corinth, we've looked at the church in Rome, we've looked at the church in Ephesus, we've looked at the church in Colossae. Four New Testament congregations, and not a one of them, used any mechanical instrument of music. Let's come now to the Hebrew letter. In Hebrews 2, verse number 12, a very significant inspired reference. Here in part is another quotation from the Old Testament. But in the midst of it, the Hebrew writer said, In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. That is about as direct a passage as you and I will find in the New Testament. For we have reference to the church, that communal assembly in which the church has come together. And he says, In the midst of that assembly will I sing praise unto thee. He said nothing about playing an instrument, he said nothing about adorning the edifice with such. He made mention, didn't he? In the midst of the church will praises be sung unto thee. In light of all of that, we might now revisit our question. 
if faith comes by hearing the Word of God, and if whatsoever is not of faith is sin, what then must you and I say about the music of worship? What is the only thing authorized? You may have noticed earlier I mentioned that we would look at every New Testament text that relates to the music of worship. There are other passages that discuss music, but they are not in the confines of worship on earth. We have looked at all of them. What has been authorized? What music has been discussed? What music has been mentioned? What music has thus been given the approval of heaven? It's only vocal. A cappella singing. You'll notice that thus anything that falls outside that description and anything that falls outside that presentation is thus singing by the definition of Romans 14.23. As we come near the conclusion of that, there are a few things at the bottom that we might thus use to conclude our lesson this morning. We've learned so on so many occasions that Jesus said that God is a spirit and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The truth part of that takes us back to the requirements of Scripture from John 17, 17. But we've seen this morning what the Scripture has authorized, what the Scripture has set forth. It is the loveliness of singing. What's more, we notice that whatsoever is not done in faith is thus singing. So when Mr. Pinkerton allowed that melodion to be brought into the worship, and when there are many in that congregation who in fact encouraged and supported it, they were not acting in faith. They were thus acting in singing. And yea, every congregation that has done so since has done the same. For whatsoever is not of faith is singing. Might we thus make that final statement? This does lift high, of course, the matter of our singing. Not any of us could question or doubt that maybe that singing at the Midway Church was atrocious. Maybe it was that bad. That nonetheless did not give license to usurp the realization of faith and to introduce what God never authorized. They should have practiced more. They should have taken to heart the reality of trying to improve their singing and not to go beyond what the Scriptures had revealed. And today, doesn't that highlight how important our singing is? We have no license to introduce anything of a mechanical nature to accompany it. The instrument to be played is your heart and mine. And thus, as we sing, may we participate by teaching and admonishing each other. You'll notice that it's just as wrong to sit there and not sing. We need to participate as we lift our voices to Godward and participate as we are able to do, singing with grace in our heart to the Lord, Colossians 3.16. And as we speak to each other using those precious tones of those scriptural sentiments in our singing. In conclusion today, we've looked at music of worship as it relates to faith. And those simple statements have summarized what we've learned. That music in worship is scriptural, but it must be the music that God has authorized, and that is singing and no more. And thus, as we sing, we do what God has commanded. We must thus sing the way, of course, that He has commanded, and that is with our spirit, participating with the fullness of our capability and doing so as we teach and admonish one another. Music of worship as it relates to faith. Of course, the subject of faith touches every aspect of rightful service to God. 
If you've never become a Christian at this point, you're outside that safe realm of faith. You have never begun that precious walk in faithfulness. Today, we could assist in the riveting of that shortcoming. If you know that you're a sinner, having reached the age of understanding that point, and if you know that Jesus died for you and that there is a plan of salvation, it's time you respond to it. You need to believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Son of God. Romans 10, verses 10 to 15. You furthermore need to repent of your sins. Acts 2.38 You are commanded by God to confess the name of Jesus as the Son of God, affirmed for us in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. And then to be immersed, baptized for the forgiveness of sins. If we could assist you in that, commandment of Mark 16, 16, we'd be delighted today to be a part of your introduction into the family of God. If you've begun that walk with God but no longer are faithful, perhaps you've allowed thinking to stray far from the truth. You've begun to even support and uphold things the Bible does not. If others are aware of that, come back to your first love today publicly by asking for their prayers of forgiveness. And most importantly, that God would forgive you. If we could, in fact, pray on your behalf today, or if we could assist you in your initial obedience, why not let that be known while together we stand and while we sing?